Okay, we'd like to welcome you to our current event and weekly Bible study for December 30th, 2007. This will be our last few uh, teachings for the year until we go into 2008. And in today's lesson, we're going to be talking about Catherine Kuhlman. And many of you might have heard of her from times past in regard to some of the earlier... I guess not so much earlier, because she wasn't at, there at the uh, in the Pentecostal movement from the very beginning. She kind of came on a little bit later. But her role, leading up to today's modern-day Pentecostal charismatic movement, she played a major role as an intermediary in that. And we're going to look at that today. This article that we're going to be reading from is entitled, Catherine Kuhlman, Healer and New Age Diva. I like the title. I thought it was pretty accurate. The, the man that's writing this is a guy named Robert Duncan. And I don't even think... I think this is just more of an expose on her. More than any, more than any other thing here. Um, I don't believe this is even from a Christian source. And in some ways, if it was, you could say, well, this is all purely biased from a, you know maybe, let's just say, a fundamentalist standpoint, trying to attack her and tear her down. These are just observations that have been made about Catherine Kuhlman. The facts of her life are easily verifiable, easily documented, these types of things. And um, we're just going to be talking about a little bit of that today and see what type of fruit that she was bearing with her ministry. Because the Bible says, By their fruits you shall know them. And that's what we're going to be doing today. So starting off, it says, Catherine Kuhlman was a founding member of the New Age movement that synchronized Christianity and spiritualism together with pop psychology and the lavish serving of capitalism. I think this is, I, I just like the way this article was written because that pretty much set a mouthful there. She was essentially a founding member of the New Age movement that synchronized Christianity and spiritualism together. See, this is the the reason that I wanted to do this teaching was for this very reason, because we're seeing a lot of this today in the contemplative church movement. We're seeing a lot of this today re-emerging in Catholic circles. We're seeing a lot of this emerging within the modern-day apostate religions, uh, where they're getting into this contemplative Christianity. They're doing these things now called labyrinths, meditations. They're heavily into this, meditating on the saints and things like this. And this is making it much easier for the Catholic Church and the modern-day apostate uh, church, particularly of America, to come together as one and ultimately form the One World Church. She had a lot to do with the very beginnings of this, more from a Pentecostal, charismatic type of standpoint. And um, it's important a lot of times to look at the root of a matter. And this is, she was one more of the, one of the foundational persons that, that brought this about. It goes on to say, thanks to Kuhlman's pop status, websites now sell the claim of being personally transformed and healed by the practicing of Christian yoga. Okay, so this is the fruit of Catherine Kuhlman. We, we're no more than a paragraph into this, and we're learning a lot here. Christian yoga, there is no such thing. Okay, it's like Christian rock. There's no such thing. You can put whatever kind of label on it you want. But if it's evil, it's evil. And you cannot put a Christian veneer on something that's evil. Yoga has its basis in Hinduism. And there's different types of yoga. Um, I know I grew up around this. My mom was heavily involved with this and still is. And um, yoga's evil. 
it's it's not so much stretching your muscles and doing these other things. It's all the other junk and baggage that goes along with it. Okay, the the meditation, all these other things, trying to get into an altered state of consciousness. Uh, and then there's different types of yoga. Some are very, very flagrant. There's one type of yoga called tantric yoga, which is basically means sex yoga, where they incorporate um, things like sexual practices into the yoga. And then this is like, and this is a basis of of, of Hinduism. In, within tantric yoga, they do all kind of other things like drink their own urine and eat their own feces, stuff like that. They really do. And this is a part of it. They do a lot of very disgusting things in Hinduism. And Hinduism has a pantheon of gods that they worship. One of the main gods that they worship is the god of dung. I saw a documentary on this once. And um, so, God is not the author of confusion. And that's all Hinduism is, is absolute, total, utter confusion. And when we talk about Christian yoga, just to reiterate, there is no such thing as that. I would stay away from yoga. And there's a lot of churches now that are actually bringing it into the churches, Catholic churches, things of this, so they, they can have their Christian yoga within the church. And all it is, is when you do this and you practice these things, you're opening doorways to let... Uh, you're, you're opening doorways to basically demonic infestation. Okay? So if we go further, it says... It is thanks to Kuhlman that the practice of being, quote, slain in the spirit is said to have been made more popular in the evangelical circles. And where the attendees of her crusades passed out on the floor saying they had been touched by the Holy Spirit, Kuhlman could be an original megachurch pastor. From her 2,000-seat Denver Tabernacle to her top billing at Los Angeles Shrine Auditorium, while Kuhlman received an honorary doctorate from Oral Roberts... And being, and despite being a Baptist, it was the Pentecostal movement that she often associated with. Despite her divorce and her speaking, and and her view on speaking in tongues, which she doesn't normally allow at her services. So I guess she didn't normally allow the speaking of tongues, but she had no problem with the whole slain in the spirit thing. It was almost as though, because she was originally supposedly a Baptist. It was almost as though she was trying to bridge the gap between the Baptists, the New Age movement, the Catholics, uh, and Christianity. She was trying to be, act more as a liaison and a bridge builder between those things. And the devil used her brilliantly in order to accomplish this, this job here. Now, we're going to talk in a little bit here on the biblical qualifications of a pastor. Just from the foundation of what she was doing, she had no biblical right to be doing this. For, for so many different reasons. And we're going to discuss that a little bit more further. Uh, but you can see that uh, this is a, uh, a very, very dangerous thing that we're talking about here. And if we go further, Time Magazine once called her a veritable one woman. This is quote. Time Magazine said this. A veritable one woman shrine of lords. End of quote. That would be like one of the places that Catholics take pilgrimages to. The shrine of lords. Such was the fervor that Catherine Kuhlman, who lived from 1907 to 1976, garnered. Wayne E. Warner, in his book, The Woman Behind the Miracles, goes so far to claim that Catholics would prefer to save money and attend a Catherine Kuhlman crusade than travel to a Marian shrine. That's, they, 
Because, see, the Catholics are always looking for signs and wonders. Now, what did Jesus say? He said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Well, this is what the Catholics are all about. It's all about signs and wonders and tickling the flesh and having your heart move. But the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But most religions, that's what they're all about if you really think about it. Uh, at their core, they want to see that supernatural manifestation in order to validate their faith. Because they have to have that. Because they don't have a real faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't have a real biblical faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is the, is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. See, it's not seen. That's what faith is. But signs and wonders and miracles are seen. So there's really no faith in these types of things. So see, faith is the opposite of all of this that we're describing here. If you have to have lying signs and wonders and all these other things in order to work yourself up into a religious fervor, well, what you have is false. And that is an indictment on essentially every single major religious system in the world, if you really think about it, because most religious systems have that at one level or another. Now, I'm not saying the Lord Jesus Christ is not capable of producing signs and wonders in these types of things. He, he created the universe. We just have to be very careful that we don't put that ahead of the Word of God, which is what most people would prefer to do. So if we go further, with the public came the television and the fame and the money, including an investigation by the IRS. Kuhlman's biographer and friend, Jamie Buckingham, admitted that she, quote, loved her expensive clothes, precious jewels, luxury hotels, and first-class travel. Well, is any of that biblical at all? Now, that's what all the, the, the televangelists do. But the love of money is the root of all evil. Jesus said that it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So, you know, they that fall into these riches and traps fall into many a snare and have pierced themselves through. There's all these Bible verses that relate to this, that these aren't things that we should want or pursue. But she loved her expensive clothes, her precious jewels, her luxury hotels, and her first class travel. Just like all the other ones do. Benny Hinn and the, and the whole lot of them. They have their mansions. They, they have, a lot of them have their own private jets that they fly around in. Whereas it says about you know Jesus, he didn't have a place to lay his head. I mean, the apostles and, and these types of people that, that came on after him, the martyrs and the, these types, a lot of these people had almost no material possessions whatsoever. Yet the modern day apostate church would try to convince you otherwise. And tell you, oh, no, no, Jesus was walking in big money, like John Advanzini, I've heard say. And all of these other things, which are total lies from the pit of hell. If people would just read the King James Bible, they could even read an apostate Bible most of the time and figure this out. They'd know this. But see, these people have chose to put their Bibles down, or chose to put their Bibles down and let these devils reinterpret the Bible for them. And say, oh, it really doesn't mean that. We're just going to spiritualize this passage. It's not real. It's just symbolic. You've got to be real careful about that. The Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and that maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. So you don't want to trust in man. Not if that man is leading you away from the word of God and that truth. I tell people, don't trust in me. I'm not trying to hold them to a higher accountability than I would hold myself. I'm saying, search the thing out for yourself. Be a good Berean like the Bible talks about, and search these things out to see whether they be so. 
That's all we need to do. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 And make sure you have the right Bible, which is the King James Bible. If any of you ever want a, uh, an attachment uh, I have in word format on the King James Bible, I can send that to you. Just email me and I'll send you the whole attachment on there. And if we go further, let's see here. But it wasn't just the luxury that created a fog around Kuhlman. Some critics claim Kuhlman's slain, slain means, mean, meaning these people that were slain in the spirit, was the work of unholy spirits. Well, sure it was. All the slain in the, in the Holy Spirit, show me that anywhere in the New Testament, where this was going on, where people were laying hands, they were falling back, passing out, and having these almost uh, etheric experiences. It's not biblical. It's absolutely not biblical. It's a current aberration of the Pentecostal movement. In the last, let's say, not even hundred years. But it's not biblical. So, if it's not biblical, what was it? Well, it was unbiblical. If they were having this experience, and I know because I've been there and I've done it, although it feels right, Although it, it tickles the flesh and these types of things, if it's not biblical, if it doesn't line up with the Word of God, then it's not of God. And when these types of things happen, you know, of all denominations, I would have to say, after the studies that we've done and looked at, the Pentecostal charismatic sect of pseudo-Christianity is the most deceived of all the sects. They're going to be the ones that yoke up first with the Catholics. They've already done it. There's charismatic Catholics now. They've, they've been there. There's been those for a long, long time. They're going to be the ones that try to bridge the gap with the lying signs and wonders. That's why I key a lot on charismatic and Pentecostals. I know I've been there. I've done it. And I know it's very, very dangerous. And I know that it's going to be one of the main devices used by Satan in order to create the one world religious system. Particularly bringing the, quote, Christian part underneath that umbrella. So we've got to be real careful of this stuff. So, it says in here, despite being a Baptist preacher, she was never a Baptist preacher. I don't care if she called herself that or not. From a biblical standpoint, she's not a Baptist preacher. We're going to look at those Bible verses in a second. It says, many of Kuhlman's critics came from her own quarters. Among some of the harsher criticisms was the view that she was soft on Catholics. <laughs> well... We're going to see that, and that, there's no doubt about that. But again, in order to be used of Satan as a mighty tool in Satan's hands, she's going to have to be soft on most religions. Okay. In response to reports that she was a that she had a private audience on October 11, 1972, with Pope Paul the Sixth, some extreme Protestants still find their blood boiling. Quote: Catherine Kuhlman was a witch. That was accepted by many. Do you suppose that the Pope blessed her for serving Jesus? Or could it be that an Antichrist was was one that an Antichrist was blessing one of his own servants? End of quote. Now he doesn't say who quoted that, but I say that's a pretty accurate assessment. She was a witch. She was operating essentially in charismatic witchcraft, being slain in the spirit through the means of unholy spirits. This is a form of witchcraft. It's not a light matter. 
the line signs and wonders and all the stuff that, that supposedly goes on within the charismatic circles is very dangerous. But this woman actually had an audience with Pope Paul VI on October 11, 1972. And this man says she was a witch. Do you suppose this, the Pope blessed her for serving Jesus Christ? Huh, please. The devil himself would not bless somebody for serving Jesus Christ. And this is what you essentially have when you have the Pope of the Catholic Church. You have a devil in the flesh. Demon possessed of the toenails. Why would he bless her if she was really doing God's work? Or could it be that the Antichrist was blessing one of his own servants? Well, absolutely. Or Actually, here's a better way to word it. Or could it be that the Antichrist was blessing one of his own serpents? Oh, sorry. Little slip of the tongue there. Buckingham writes in her book, Daughter of Destiny, that Kuhlman had a special love for doctors. And wanted them either on stage or in the front rows of the auditorium. See, with Kuhlman it was all show. She wanted, she wanted to put on a good show. Which is essentially the same way that most of these Pentecostal evangelists have evolved into as well. But she was one of the main ones. So she liked a lot of doctors up there. I guess it gave her more, she felt like it gave her more credibility. The same was true of priests and nuns. Especially if they were in uniform. He that is highly esteemed among, or that which is highly esteemed among man is an abomination in the sight of God. God is no respecter of persons. Okay? But Catherine Kuhlman was. And you notice all these false religions are that very thing. They'll respect the ones that wear the gay clothing, as the Bible says. So come, sit up here. You know, while, while we'll have the, uh, the poor guy that's in rags, you know, sit on the footstool, or on the ground. So she liked to have a lot of doctors, a lot of priests and nuns. I guess she really liked, particularly in regard to the priests and nuns, she liked to have a lot of that, you know, demonic baggage coming into the... It probably created the right mood, if you think about it. If these people are demon-possessed coming into your meeting, don't you think that's going to open the doors for a lot of other bad things to happen? Nothing thrilled Catherine more than to have 30 or 40 Catholic clergymen. See, she was doing this way before TBN was doing it, where they'll have some token Catholic guy in the back wearing his shirt on backwards with that collar. She was doing that. And now Benny Hinn's almost went all, all the way over to that. If you see him now, he wears that thing where he has like a cutaway. He hasn't quite went to the full Catholic garb yet, but that's probably coming. So could you imagine calling yourself a born-again Christian, a Baptist, born-again Christian, and you're doing all the stuff, slain in the Spirit, having all these people up on the nuns and, and, and priests and 30 or 40 Catholic clergymen. She liked it especially if they wore clerical collars or better yet, cassocks. Now, Doug, I, I need to get a cassock, I think. I, I need to get some type of... You know, you could call me Monsignor or something. I, I don't know. I, I I think we need to go over to this. Just kidding. Just a little teasing there. But, yeah, she liked it better yet when they wore cassocks. And they were sitting behind her while she ministered. Almost like looking on in awe. 
people would look up there and say, oh, look at all these men of God. And they're looking on to Catherine as though she's this prophetess that has come. What a devil. Somehow it seemed to lead authenticity to what she was doing. Well, if anybody would compare what she was doing to the Bible, she, she better have somebody up there that can maybe lend some authenticity because nothing that she was doing would hold up with the Bible. If anybody was to examine her. Of course, having those devils there didn't lend any more authenticity either. But it put on a good show in the sight of man. And what this did is it helped to create the proper climate of a trust and understanding that was so necessary for a miracle service. Doesn't this make you want to vomit this whole thing? Same stuff goes on today, but I'm telling you right now, this is where a lot of it started originating from. Particularly with Benny Hinn's ministry, as we're going to see. So Warner, in the affirmation book, The Woman Behind the Miracles, also noted Kuhlman's attraction to Catholics. Catherine had but one pass through Las Vegas. And she would deliver the gospel with power. Give me a break. She's delivering a perverted gospel. She's intermingling the gospel with lying signs and wonders. She should have been preaching to those Catholics that they're all going to hell. Of course, she was going to hell too, and leading as many people as she could to hell with her. How could you co-mingle the true gospel of Jesus Christ? The Bible says a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. That's all, her, that's all her ministry was, was leaven. It was corrupt, the foundation was corrupt, and the Bible says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Psalm 11, verse 3. And her foundation was totally corrupted and destroyed. In fact, she was never even qualified. So, if we go further, Catherine had but one pass through Las Vegas. She would deliver the gospel with power. Hundreds of people in Las Vegas, as well as the faithful in Youngstown, Pittsburgh, Franklin, had agreed to pray that the Holy Spirit would stir the city. Not far away, a Roman Catholic priest said a mass. For the meeting the day before wrote Warner. We know, all we have to do is read that one paragraph to know what she was doing was of the devil. It may have had a veneer of Christianity. It may have had this nice religious veneer, but, but the devil loves religion. He's going to use religion to take more people to hell than any other thing on the planet. Whether you call it Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons, Catholicism, they're all religions being used by Satan. Some of them it even has a Christian veneer to take people to hell. Mightily, mightily used. More than any other thing in the world. Because most people in the world have some sort of religious... Um, way they're leaning. I mean, there's a billion Muslims, over a billion Muslims. They're all leaning a certain way. They're all putting their, their trust and faith in Allah. You have the Catholics, which comprise millions and millions of people. They're trusting in their works, their seven sacraments to get them into heaven. They all trust in works. There's only two religions in the world. I've said this before. There's only two religions. There's all the isms. Islam, you know, Catholicism, Buddhism, Confucianism, all these. There's all the isms out there that basically say you get to heaven through, or nirvana, or wherever you're trying to get to, through good works. Now, Satanism would be through bad works. And they're trying to get to hell. But they're still trying to get there. Whereas true Bible-believing fundamental Christianity, and I will not even put a denominational label on it, 
Just the, what the Bible says. It says, you're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shall be saved. Okay, that's what the Bible says. It's a free gift you either freely receive or you freely reject. Not by works of righteousness are we saved, but according to His mercy, He saved us. There's nothing we could do to earn it. And if you think you have earned your salvation, you've earned nothing but hell. You cannot earn it. But see, that's the problem. People have so much pride that they can't accept that. They've got to be able to do it on their own. They've got to be able to earn their way to heaven. That's pride. That's all that is, if you think about it. Why would, why would you want that? Wouldn't it just be better to do it the way the Bible says? Just, it's a gift you freely receive or freely reject? I, I don't know. I, it seems like the best deal in the universe to me, but I, most people, I guess, don't see it that way. So if we go further, let's see here. It uh, is often reported that Kuhlman's first church was in Franklin, Pennsylvania, something that isn't entirely correct. More aptly, perhaps, would be to say that the Franklin church was where the reborn Kuhlman was launched. Kuhlman was born in Concordia, Missouri, to German parents, and said that she was born again at the age of 14 in her hometown, in her hometown Methodist church. Quote, this is from Kuhlman, I guess. It was the beginning of something that changed my whole life, said Kuhlman. All that I knew was the glorious new birth experience, and as a young girl, when I went to preach to those farmers in Idaho... See, this is the first problem. She went to preach to farmers in Idaho as a young girl? Now, we're going to look at what the Bible says about this. What are the qualifications of a pastor, a deacon, an overseer, a preacher, a bishop? What, what are those qualifications? But see, as a young girl, she went to preach to those farmers in Idaho. Totally, right there alone, somebody should have pulled her aside and rebuked her. Or corrected her, at bare minimum. She said, I could tell them nothing more than what I had experienced. That Jesus would forgive their sins. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with witnessing to somebody, like on a one-on-one situation, but this is she's acting as though she was going to these places to preach to these people. So, she said, so I preached salvation all across Idaho to every farmer, to everyone who would listen. But gradually I began to realize there was someone besides the Father and the Son. There was the third person of the Trinity. Now, this is the big thing that Charismatics and Pentecostals really, really emphasize, which is the Holy Spirit. This is how they justify all the lying signs and wonders, because they say, oh, the Holy Spirit's coming in and He can do whatever He wants. I've heard, I had a pastor before the church I was at, um... Pastor Corden, and I remember him saying, let me tell you something. I've been around the Holy Spirit enough to know that the Holy Spirit is no gentleman. Because, see, the reason he said that is because what takes place in so many of the Pentecostal services, like they'll have people that are supposedly slain in the Spirit. I've seen people get slain in the Spirit and fall backward, and I I remember one time there was this, it was like a... uh, somebody that was in the the, uh, church choir or band or something had like one of their instrument cases and they fell right back and their head smashed on that thing. I mean, you could hear it all over the church. 
and I've I've seen people fall back and their dresses go up and in um, all kind of crazy things happen. And that's why. And then people go in where where they're barking like dogs and in 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 being really super obnoxious and basically having demonic manifestations. This is why this Pentecostal preacher that was at one time my pastor said that. He says, oh, let me tell you something, Holy Spirit's no gentleman. Because he attributed all of those lying signs and wonder things to the Holy Spirit. Which is very dangerous. And then it says that, well, before I go any further, so this is something you'll heavily see emphasized in the Pentecostal Charismatic Services, which is the Holy Spirit. Okay? And another thing about that, they believe that if it's the Holy Spirit doing it, He can do whatever He wants. Whether what He's doing is unbiblical or not, He could do whatever He wants. And therefore, they can justify any of their own terrible behavior because, hey, it's just the Holy Spirit doing it. Who are we to say? Who are we to question the Holy Spirit? But see, the Holy Spirit wouldn't do something like this. And we're going to read about that in a second. So she said, after seeing all this, I felt compelled to know more about him. This is Kuhlman talking. And as I began searching and studying God's word, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, I could see that the divine healing was also in the atonement. Now, I don't know if that means that that was part of us getting saved or what, but, yeah, it was just pointed out to me that a lot of the uh, preachers out there say that the divine healing was part of the atonement because the Bible says, by his stripes you're healed. Now, I'm not saying the Lord can't heal somebody, but if he's going to do it, he's going to do it biblically. He's going to do it in decency and in order. He's not going to be the author of confusion, which is just the description of almost every Pentecostal charismatic service. <clears throat> There's so many things that go on in these services that are totally unbiblical. They're not reading the right Bible almost any any of the time. And, again, it's like a big mass bunch of chaos out there. And yet they think that this is all of God. That, uh, you know, he's just all of a sudden changed the rules just for them. Makes them feel real special and real big. We can pray in tongues, you can't. That's another thing, you know, it's, it's a spirit of pride that wells up in these people. I know, I've been there. Well, we, we speak in tongues, and therefore we're, we're, we're really filled with the Holy Spirit, because we speak in tongues. And, you know what, guy? <laughs> you don't speak in tongues. You're, you're just a Baptist, or you're just a whatever. And you're not really filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that imply? That implies they're really not saved. If you think about it, they won't come out and say that typically. Say, well, you're not saved because you don't speak in tongues. But in the back of their mind, they think that. I've been there, I know. I'm not saying I have that always in the back of my mind, but it's there. It's, you're always wondering, well, they're probably not even saved. They can't, they can't speak in tongues. They're not filled with the Holy Spirit. So then pride comes in. Pride goeth before fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Well, that's what happens with most of these religions. They, they are doing something that they feel as though no one else in any other religion is doing, so we're better. And then other people start looking at them and saying, well, I want to be like them, so then they fall into it. And if the blind leadeth the blind, they'll both fall in the ditch. So that's what happens. So finishing the 10th grade, Kuhlman began to preach when she was just 16. Well, now let's set this straight biblically. So she began to preach 
when she was 16. Let's look at the biblical qualifications for pastors, elders, deacons, and spiritual overseers. This is how the Bible refers to them as. 1 Timothy 3, 1-7. 1 Timothy 3, 1-7. Quote, This is a true saying, If a man desire the office of a bishop, which would be essentially like a pastor or a spiritual overseer. Okay, well, I'm going to prove that in a second. Actually, I tell you what, let's just define bishop right now before we go any further. What is a bishop, according to the Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary? which more accurately defines the words used at the time of the writing of the King James Bible, much more accurately than it does now. Okay, the word bishop is, quote, an overseer, a spiritual superintendent, a ruler or director applied to Christ. Doesn't this sound like a pastor? A bishop is a spiritual overseer, is a pastor. They're all essentially the same thing, a spiritual superintendent. A ruler or director applied to Christ. And then they give the... Uh, they even give the uh, First Peter 1-2. They, they'll actually quote Bible verses in the Noah Webster's 1828. It's another really neat thing about it. It says, Ye were sheep going astray, but now return to the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. Okay, now, the second definition that they give in the Noah Webster's is, In the primitive church, a spiritual overseer an elder or a presbyter, okay, so those are all essentially the same things as well, they're saying, they're grouping them in as well. So in the primitive church, a spiritual overseer, an elder or a presbyter, one who had the pastoral care of a church. Now hold on, even if it says primitive church here, are we better than they? Isn't that the way it should be? Or have we just kind of redefined terms in today's modern day age, just to kind of fit our our whim. Who is more spiritually correct? The same persons are in this chapter called elders or presbyters, overseers or bishops. It's essentially the same thing. Okay? Um, so, hopefully know, we know now what a bishop is defined as. Okay? Essentially a preacher, a pastor, spiritual overseer, an elder, a presbyter, spiritual superintendent. So, let's go back to 1 Timothy 3, 1-7. This is a true saying. If a man, says if a man, doesn't say if a woman, says if a man desire the office of a bishop. See, he's the only one that could even desire the office from a biblical standpoint. But if he desire that office, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife. Well, why doesn't it say the wife of one husband? If a woman could do it. You know why it doesn't say that? Because it's a such a total foregone conclusion. It's not even a point of debate in the Bible. The whole thing of women being in ministry in this regard is not even... It wasn't even a point of debate in the Bible. It was a foregone conclusion is what it was. That's why it says as we start this chapter, if a man desired the office of a bishop, if it was a man or a woman, it said if a man or a woman or a person desire. No, it says a man. He desireth a good work. Everything is in the masculine tense here. Everything. 
A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, nor no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre. Well, that would disqualify just about everybody from the ministry. Do you realize that, that if, if all the pastors were start to, would actually go by this, and actually, the Bible says if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged of God. If we would search our own hearts. Do you realize how many preachers and pastors, even the, ma- even the male ones, are, have totally, either are totally disqualified, or have totally disqualified themselves from being a pastor? Totally disqualified. The vast majority. Absolutely. I mean, it, could you imagine the modern day trying to apply all these categories to a, to a man? It's very, very few would qualify. It says, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth his own house, well his own house, well, I know a lot of pastors that don't do that by itself. They don't rule their own house at all well. Their house is absolute chaos. And yet they're going up in front of a congregation, trying to lead a congregation, supposedly in the name of Jesus Christ, and they can't even rule their own house well? Seems to me they'd be disqualified from the ministry. But I sure don't see a lot of them stepping down. Huh, I wonder why. And then it says, having his children in subjection with all gravity. You know, if, if you went to a cemetery, I mean a seminary, why aren't they teaching this as the foundation of even coming to the school? This should be the foundation of even being admitted if you're wanting to be a pastor or, or the overseer of a church. This should be the prerequisites. And you, and, and you know... And it shouldn't just be taken off that person's word. There, there should be other people that should come to the plate and, and verify, yes, this person is a man of integrity and honor. It shouldn't just be coming from that one person. If their life is such, then it should be very, very obvious. Okay. Um, I, yeah. Doug just informed me of something really interesting. The primitive Baptists, which is a, which kind of like a denomination within the Baptists, they do this. They actually bring up their own people within the church and they don't actually have them go to seminary. Now there's a lot of stuff the primitive Baptists are into, unfortunately, that are off base biblically as well. See, there's a lot of denominations out there that have some tenets that they've really figured out and really nailed down very, very well. And yet then they turn around and they totally fall on their face when it comes to other issues of doctrine. This is why I've, I've tended to shy away from all the denominations and just see what does the Bible say. Don't put a denominational label on me because it seems like when that happens, that's a source of pride and it seems like that pride comes in and blinds them to certain issues. Whereas they may nail down one issue, they actually get proud about it. And that blinds them to something else. So, um, people email me all the time, where do I go to church? What do I do? I don't know what to tell them. I don't. I mean, I, I refer them to Pastor Slattery, Pastor Weaver, um, underground Christian network, these types of things, up on Sermons Audio, but I don't know where to tell them to go to church, unless they want to form their, uh, form their own home church, like your home Bible study. They could do that. I mean, if, if it's a group of women, obviously, you know, I, 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 and this is what we're talking about today here, what are the biblical qualifications? 
you know, to do something like this, to, to lead your own home church or church or, or Bible study. But I don't know what to tell these people to go. We, we're in the end times. Every church that I'm going to tell them to go to, most of the vast majority of the time, they're going to take no stance on what Bible version is, is the Word of God. Therefore, if the, if the Word of God is our foundation of our faith and they don't even know what the Bible is, then you're already polluted right off the get-go. And then there are 501c3 institutions that were, that, gave their, that were given their right to exist by the government through the Internal Revenue Service. And that is the head of that ministry, whether they want to accept that or not. Because whoever gives you your right to exist and whoever gave you your right as, as far as creating you, that is this very same entity that rules over you, whether you want to admit it or not. And the Bible says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what communion hath Christ with Belial? You can't yoke yourself up with the government and say, Oh, it's not going to affect me, bless God. It's not going to do it. Yes, it will affect you. You don't see it because you've been blinded to it. And I'm not saying that there's not these places you can go and get saved and these types of things, but I'm saying ultimately it will affect you. And when the chickens come home to roost, when the government starts telling you from the pulpit, you're a 501c3 institution, you can't preach on this, you can't say this, or you're going to lose your tax exemption, or we're going to come in and shut you down, and they're already starting to do this, and I've done several teachings on this, don't be surprised. So, let's go further with this. Okay, so, one that rules his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. I don't see a lot of that from pastors. I really don't. I see them letting their kids do whatever they want to do. You ever, you, you heard about like all these disgruntled preacher kids that go out there and they go out and, and they live like devils and they're like... Well, that's not having your children in subjection with all gravity. Now, I'm just talking about what are the biblical qualifications. You can get mad at me all you want and say, well, yeah, but what if this happened and what that happened? I'm just saying this is what the Bible says. Okay? Then it says, not a novice, meaning like a beginner, somebody that's not well read in the word and these types of things. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into condemnation of the devil. I believe most pastors are novices. I really do. Because number one, if they were reading their Bible, they would realize that they were never qualified to begin with. They weren't. And I'm talking about male pastors. I go up and I try to listen to some of these sermons of, of, of some of these guys, even up on Sermons Audio, all you got to do is turn on the TV. All it is is fluff in milk. And, and if, if milk, but so much of the time there's so much leaven in there. We're going into the most deceptive time the world has ever known, ever. God is sending the strong delusion that they will believe a lie, that they might all be damned who receive not the love of the truth, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's the time we're going into. The time we're going into where Jesus says, said over and over, be not deceived, be not deceived. And if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3.13 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, and having their consciences seared with a hot iron. This is the time we're moving into, yet the church sits silent. Oh, it's just going to get gooder and gooder and gooder. We're going to usher in the kingdom, the dominionists are saying. 
Christian Zionists are over here trying to be trying to be Jews. Basically telling telling people, oh well, they're Jews just because of their blood. They get a get out of jail card, free card pass. They don't got to get saved the same way we do. Well, putting all kind of pressure on the president so we can go over there and nuke Iran. Show me that in the Bible where we were supposed to do that. Well, if we don't do it, they're going to get us first. Oh, that's faith. That's really faith. That God can protect you. Yeah, we're supposed to go destroy our enemies, like the Bible says. Oh no, it says bless our enemies. Do good to them that despitefully use you. Oh, okay. Now, I also believe that if these people are just going to do wickedness, and they're never going to repent, I believe Psalm 64, which is an imprecatory prayer, plays into that as well. Because should we bless them in their wickedness? Oh, God, bless them so that they can be more wicked and kill more people. And take more people to hell with them. No, there has to be a balance, I believe, in the way we pray. Ultimately, we want them to get saved. Ultimately, we do care about their souls. Do we love them enough to tell them the truth? These types of things. But we, we, we don't bless them in their wickedness at the same time. So all of this stuff that the preacher should be doing and warning people about, instead of placating them, they're not doing it. Well, why? Well, because the love of money is the root of all evil. That's probably one of the main reasons. There's, there's so many reasons. They were, they're afraid they, they would be unpopular. They'd lose their congregation. <coughs> Maybe they'd lose their 501c3 status. <clears throat> it's pitiful. It's pathetic. Now, I'm not making a blanket statement about every single pastor in America or worldwide. I, I don't want to, I'm saying the majority. Okay? The lukewarm majority. Does that mean I think I'm perfect? or what? No, it doesn't mean that at all. I've said this many times, if I got what I deserved, I'd get death. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, that's all I'm worthy of. Oh, what a wretch of a man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? That's what Paul said, and that's I can relate to that verse. So I'm not saying it in that regard. i got a long way to go myself. But I'm not up here calling myself a pastor either. We're leading a home Bible study. I'm doing this as a teacher. I'm a watchman more than anything else. I'm not called to be a pastor of a church. I'm not called to be a spiritual overseer. So if we go further, Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. End of quote. So, there's a lot of qualifications here. This is not easy to do. Do you know anybody that could... There, there are not a whole lot of people that, that could fulfill this in today's day and age. There's so much leaven in society and in people that there's very few people that would actually qualify for this anymore. I think there could be if we would yield ourselves to the Word of God. If these, if these men would actually repent of their wickedness. I mean, the women, it's not even a foregone conclusion. They shouldn't be doing what they're doing. Joyce Myers, all these women that have all these ministries, it's unbiblical. It is unbiblical. According to this, you're up there, you're teaching other men at the same time? How can you justify this? Reading these verses. This is just one verse. We're going to read a couple more. And I'm going to do a full study on this in the near future. This is not because I want to be a chauvinist or I want to have my way. I'm just pointing out what the Bible says. It's, if you have an argument, it's not so much with me, it's with the Word of God. 
See, when I see a woman up there preaching on TV or whatever, she has no right to be doing that. None whatsoever. From a biblical standpoint, she has no legs to stand on. Yet you have all these women preachers and ministers out there that have their huge mega million dollar ministries and they said they're called of God, not of my God. It's an abomination. But it's just a sign of the times. It's an absolute total sign of the times of the apostasy. It's just more confirmation that we are in Revelation 3, the Laodicean church era, where we're neither hot nor cold, but we're lukewarm, and God's going to vomit us. He's not going to vomit me, because I'm not going along with that. That's why the Bible says, Wherefore, come out from among her, my children, and be not partakers of her plagues. Come out of that 501c3 system. Reading some perverted Bible. Having some women, some woman and, uh, up in the pulpit ruling over you. Or calling you her pastor. What an abomination in the sight of God. Show me any woman pa preachers in the New Testament at all. That were going, and going from town to town like the apostles and preaching with the apostles. Can you find? No, you can't find any. I'm sorry, they're not there. Well, that was then and this is now. Why can't you let go and let God? Whatever. I had a guy this week. I've been having more and more people tell me lately that, that um, may I burn in hell. These types of things. You know, all that really does is fire me up more. It does nothing to dissuade me. I get the vast majority of the emails that I get are positive. The vast majority. And you have to purpose it in your heart that if you're out there putting out truth, that it doesn't really matter what people say to you because your life is not a popularity contest as a Christian. And if every single person on this planet forsakes you and deceives you, you're still going to go at it. You're not going to quit no matter what. You have to have that in your heart because you never know. If you say, well, if this happens, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I could. No, you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ via the Holy Spirit through you, I can do all things through Christ which strengthen me. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. It doesn't matter what happens to you. You can do it. You can do it. Period. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in of yourself, lest any man should boast. But I'm telling you, you can. And it may come down to that. If everybody forsakes you in the world, your family. Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. And a, and a man's own household will be the, you know, basically his enemies. What if that happens to you? Are you going to give up on God? I'm telling you, this is the world we're going into right now. This is the world that we're going into. People are going to forsake you. They're going to turn on you. You need to purpose it in your own heart. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter at all. It's not like I want it to happen, but most likely it's going to. Oh well. Let God be true and every man a liar. My faith is not in that man. My faith is not in my mom or my dad or whoever. Oh, well, if, if they fell away, I just don't know if I could do it. Whatever. You're going to be found, you're going to be weighed and found wanting. Was, didn't that happen to Belshazzar? He was weighed and found wanting. Now, does that mean I think I'm Mr. Super Christian and I'm judging everyone out there listening? No! I'm speaking as much to myself as I am to anyone else. Gird up your loins. Be like a man. Quit you like men and be strong. That's what we're going to have to do. 
So, never does the word of God imply a bishop, which was and is the equivalent of a modern day pastor. We've already went over that. Never does it apply that they could be a woman. It is such a foregone conclusion, the Bible only used this term in the masculine, and makes it very clear that a bishop, pastor, elder, deacon, or spiritual overseer is to be the husband of one wife, because it, it talks about deacons, later the qualifications for deacons, which are very similar to these qualifications we just read. Never does, it, does the Bible say these could be the wife of one husband. It's a foregone conclusion. So, if we go further, 1 Timothy 2.11-15 says, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Okay. Now, no, I don't think this means that a woman has to be in church and never open her mouth. But when it says be in silence, it's talking about her not teaching okay, or usurping authority over a man. It's not talking about her never opening her mouth if she walks into a church. It says, For Adam was formed, and then Eve. And then Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So it says, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor do you serve authority over a man, but to be in silence. So when it comes to the, to the, to the subject of a woman teaching, she is to be in silence. Okay, now, I know the Bible also says other things about women that, that the elder women teach the younger women, and we're going to go over that in a future study. And, and, and that's fine, okay? But I'm talking about, <laughs> we've got, like I said, these mega, mega church churches that have women as their pastor, installed as their pastors, or these big TV ministries. How unbiblical can you get? And it has nothing to do with me being a chauvinist, because I am not a chauvinist. I am talking about, what does the Word of God say? This is not my rule book, but God's rule book. This is what he says. Not me. No, Doug, Doug just brought up a good point. It, it gives you these two things in verses 11 and 12. Let the woman learn silence while all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor do you serve authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. Now, in other words, it gives you in verse 11 and 12 a blanket statement. A statement of fact. This is the way things are supposed to be set up. And then it gives you the reasons why in verses 13 and 14. So it doesn't just say, make a blanket statement and then give you no reason why it's making the blanket statement. Verse 14 is really the answer. And Adam was, was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. See, Adam knew what he was pretty much doing. The woman was actually beguiled by the subtlety of the serpent, over the issue of, wow, I'm going to be as a god. She really was deceived. And in some ways, she really, probably in God's eyes, she had more of an excuse than Adam did, because Adam knew what he was doing. Knew flat out. Whereas the woman was deceived. But this is also one of the main attributes why God does not allow women pastors. See, we're the body of Christ. Okay? A man and woman are different. Okay? Each of them have different attributes. Some have strengths, some have weaknesses in different ways, obviously. And that's why when a man and woman join in, in, as husband and wife, hopefully their strengths will offset another one's weakness and, and you know, vice versa. These types of things. So, this is the way the Bible has it set up. Now, I... I this is... I. Uh, this is a little bit from an article put out by David Cloud. He makes some comments here. He says, The woman is to have a humble, 
teachable spirit, and is to not to try to push yourself into leadership positions. Now, let's go to 1 Peter 3, 4. 1 Peter 3, 5, okay. Let's see here. Uh, let's, well, hey, let's, let's just go ahead and read verse, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Okay, now, this is a really complicated subject nowadays because most husbands don't even have a backbone anymore. They got no backbone, or they have no interest in the things of God. Nothing. So, th this is a complex subject, because it would be one thing if your husband, this is best case scenario, is a man of God. Yes. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. But what if your husband is a total stinking devil? What's nothing to do with God, and you're saved, and he's telling you to do all kinds of things that are unbiblical. Well, I think there comes a point where you have to say, I would rather obey God than man. I'm sorry. I mean, who's a higher authority, God or your husband? I'm just trying to point out the obvious here. I'm not trying to cause divorces and all these other things. I'm just saying, you know, when you stand before God, you're going to have to give an account to God for the actions you've taken. And you're going to, and ultimately, you want to be able to validate your actions from the Bible, because the, wo the Word of God is what's going to actually judge us. That's what Jesus said. The Word is what's going to actually judge us. This book that we have access to now. So we're really going to be without excuse. Make sure it's the King James Bible. So likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the Word, they also may be without the Word, be won by the conversation of the wives. Okay, so this is even in reference. Okay, that if any obey not the word, they may also be without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning, let it not be that of the outward adorning of the plaiting of the hair, or the wearing of gold, or the putting on of apparel. Well, that, Catherine Kuhlman loved her, loved her jewelry, and she loved all her fancy clothes, and her jet airplanes, and her first class, whatever. Guess she must have missed that verse. You know, But let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit. Oh, that's Joyce Myers all over. Oh, I mean, if ever there was a verse that, that didn't fit Joyce Myers, it's that of a meek and a quiet spirit. She reminds me of the female version of a drill sergeant in the army. That's what she reminds me of. She's got her hair almost shaved up to her head. Wearing all her fancy outfits, up there being, you know, a preacher and a pastor to, to men and women. Because there's, there's men in that crowd, if you look. The women absolutely adore, the, her followers, her disciples absolutely adore her. She's leading them to hell, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, she sounds real good, and how she's real authoritative, speaks real, real, I really could care less. What she's doing is totally unbiblical. You think she's in subjection to her own husband? Oh, oh, man, I feel sorry for that guy. Of course, he's getting exactly what he deserves. He let it happen, if you think about it. He did! He's going to probably be just as accountable as she is. So, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price... For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, 
adorn themselves, being in subjection under their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters are ye as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. And then it says, Likewise ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Now, the Bible makes reference to this weaker vessel when it talks about um, where it said, For Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived as was in the transgression. And also, physically, they are weaker. Yes. Okay? So it says, Giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. See, if this isn't set up right, if, if, if the wife isn't in subjection, to the husband, and now I'm talking in a biblical setting here, okay? If everything was, was, both were born again Christians and saved. If this isn't set up right, what does this imply? That your prayers are going to be hindered. Let me just, okay, so if we go further, it says, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing. Okay, we're kind of getting off the the whole subject there, but hopefully that clears things up a little bit. We're gonna, like I said, we're gonna do a dedicated teaching on this in the near future. So let's go further. When it says she's not to usurp authority over a man. Obviously, then she's not going to be able to hold the position of a pastor. And if they're up on TV, particularly if they're up on TV, how are they not going to not teach men? Or if they're at the pastor... See, it's again, it's a foregone conclusion. Women are not to be pastors, or deacons, or spiritual overseers, or bishops, or spiritual superintendents, or elders, over churches. Boy, this isn't a popular... popular, you know... Most, most pastors won't preach on this because they're going to lose too many in their congregation. They'll, they'll be too, the, the women in most of these churches control everything. They do. They may not, they may not be up in the, even in the pulpit preaching, but they control it just the same. They can make their, li- their husbands' lives miserable if they want. At home. Oh, you wait till you get home, boy. You, you said that. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna regret saying that, Mr. Husband. I'll, I'll make your stinking life miserable. Oh, that's, that's really being in subjection, your husband. You, stuff goes on all the time in these churches. I've been there. I know. But, again, how biblical is that? It's ridiculous. And then if we go, uh, if we go a little bit further here. Okay, so I think we've said probably enough about that. Let's go back to this article here. And then it goes on, I think this is a quote from this book about Catherine Kuhlman. At about the age of 21, Catherine set out on her own to preach the gospel. Catherine's first congregation were the customers at a small dirty pool hall in a run-down section of Boise, Idaho. Catherine's name became well-known as she preached in tents and barns in Idaho, Utah, and Colorado. In 1933, Miss Kuhlman traveling, Miss Kuhlman's traveling revivals settled in and she opened her own church in Montgomery Ward's warehouse in Colorado, calling it the Denver Revival Tabernacle, according to the escort assortment website. 
So, this woman was going around having her tent revivals, and then she finally just broke down and started her own church. You know, the biblical thing that she was. Now, I'm going to go ahead and stop here, because we're going to run over into another teaching, so I'm going to go ahead and stop here, and we'll go to part two now.